Hallo Agents, hier ist Numo aus Köln in Deutschland und ihr hört gerade Podcast 13. This week we will be discussing episode 112 McPherson, the season finale of season 1. And your summary for the week is... The truth about Artie and McPherson's past comes to light as Pete and Micah close in on McPherson. Ah. <laughs> This week, there is no writer's appreciation because we are forever grateful to showrunner Jack Kenny and all he does, which included writing this week's episode. So, in lieu of writer's appreciation this week, I thought I'd share some small corrections and insights that we got from... Beloved friend of the show and writer of Warehouse 13, Ben Robb. You'll remember that he is one of the co-writers of the writing team that wrote episode 108, Duped. Hi, Ben. <laughs> and he shared some great stuff with us on Twitter. So here's what that is. I believe I said on our Writer's Appreciation Corner for episode 108, Duped, that Both Derek A. Hughes and Benjamin Robb were writer's assistants on Andromeda. That is not correct. Derek Hughes was a writer's assistant on Andromeda, but Benjamin Robb never worked on that show. I made that mistake because I miswrote in my notes the word afterward, which was actually meant to be Afterworld, which is a show that they did both work on before Warehouse 13, but... After Andromeda. Also, uh, there was some confusion in that episode as to why I was able to see some credits for some comics by Benjamin Robb, but not Derek Hughes, and who wrote what. Uh, ben Robb says, the reason that you don't see us both credited in some of those comics is because Ben was a comic editor and writer before they started working together. Ben Robb also listened to last week's episode for 110 Breakdown, and he mentioned that Ian Stokes started out as the writer's assistant on season one before becoming a staff writer in season two, which means that Jack Kenny let him co-write the episode 110 Breakdown while he was still a writer's assistant, which is a super cool move. So yeah, that's some fun stuff that I wanted to share with all y'all. Awesome. Thank you so much. And thanks again to Ben Robb for being so willing to share these facts and corrections with us. Now let's jump into the episode. All right. So there is a previously on reminding us about our season finale big bad, James McPherson. Um, and I think it's pretty much just the setup that we need to come into the episode which we do in a very unusual way. Um, the first establishing shot is completely in black and white, and we get several seconds of the image before any Chiron or like title details. So there's a huge fire, a burning building, um, and it's like, what's going on? Why is this black and white? My first thought would be like, is this about Pete's dad? Because that's been such a critical point of his character. But when the words come up, we learn that this was 15 years ago. Um, and that's when the full color comes in and we see a slightly younger looking Artie 
And I think this, like, hair and makeup is really, really good because, you know, he's an older guy. So 15 years ago, he looked a little younger, but not mega younger. So they they really did that just perfectly to show us his age. Um, and he is fighting with McPherson about whether to save her. And we know from previous episodes that they both loved the same woman. That's clearly who it is. And Artie is clearly struggling with the fact that she is in this building, but also if she lives, he says, other people die. And he tells McPherson, like, you don't want that on your shoulders. And this is really strong emotional and, like, ethical strength for Artie to be saying these things because he clearly believes that you can't trade someone's life that you love for someone that you don't know because that would just be ethically wrong. And you can really see that this is the moment where McPherson breaks mentally and emotionally. And I don't mean he like has a psychotic break. I mean that his entire worldview shifts in an instant. And he yells at Artie and says, this is the woman I love. This is the woman you love. We both know it. I can't believe you'd be willing to let her die. And then he goes on to say, the warehouse hoards these life-saving things and we help them do it and I'm finished. And that is really intense because he might be one of those kinds of, well, no, he definitely was one of those kinds of people who does something until it doesn't benefit him. I think he wanted to be the better person and wanted to believe that he was doing the right thing, but I don't think his worldview allowed him to accept that the right thing came at such a high price of personal sacrifice. And it's completely sympathetic because if you put yourself in either of their shoes, not even just with a romantic partner, but with, like, any person, friend, family that you're close to, if you have the ability to save them, and this is when it becomes, like, a philosophical, like, the trolley question or any of those things, right? Like, it becomes the question of, would you sacrifice a different person's life to save your family member? And a lot of people would say yes, and that's why it's a complicated issue, because, like, You love that person and many of us would choose to save the person you love. And it doesn't make you a bad person. It just means, like Jill said, that you've broken with what the kind of oath and ethics of the warehouse is. And there's this other undercurrent that I wanted to address. There is a sense that McPherson is implying that if Artie was the one that this woman had chosen he might not be making the decision he's making right now. I feel like McPherson feels that Artie has a degree of vindictiveness in his actions that I don't think are there. But I think the way that he turns on Artie, he's just seeing the worst projected image of Artie that he can imagine in order to justify his own behavior. So they continue arguing... Artie stands his ground, turns to walk away, and that's when McPherson Teslas him. And, like, hats off to Saul Rubinek's acting, because the way that he gets, like, electrically zapped in this scene 
is really painful for us because we know how hard it was for him to do what he deemed was the right thing to do. And then McPherson doesn't care. He's going to make his, his choice happen anyways. So McPherson tesla's him and Artie falls down. Uh, we see McPherson go to Artie's like pocket, I think, and take a small object. We can kind of see it's like goldish colored. And then that's when McPherson rushes towards the flames. And I actually did see what it was because it's a Phoenix medallion. I didn't know the first time I watched it that it was called the Phoenix, mm -hmm. but you and I are both from Phoenix. Yes. And <laughs> that symbol is everywhere all over the city. So I was like, that's a, Fe that's a Phoenix. <laughs> yeah. The round, we can put it in the show notes, the round like seal of the city of Phoenix with the firebird wings around in a circle is like exactly what this looks like. Yeah. So McPherson runs into the building to save presumably Carol, the woman who we met before, and he's gone too far to be saved into the building just as Artie wakes up to look into his hand and find that the medallion is missing. So we go directly from there to Lena's B&B where Mrs. Frederick is talking directly to Pete and Micah about that night. So everything we just saw in flashback was part of a story she was relaying to Pete and Micah. And she says five firemen died that night and the shot is just directly on Pete's face. He is furious, obviously. His dad was a firefighter. This is now officially personal. And then we get the information that it was Carol that McPherson rushed in to save. So I had two notes about this. Um, first is that before we even see Mrs. Frederick, the transition happens on Pete's angry face, which just really highlights how upset he is, like you said. Um, also, that same shot, because I paused it to admire the level of ire that Eddie was able to communicate without even saying any words, um, he's wearing a Lacoste shirt. Yes! <laughs> he, it's a great, like, great acting moment, but when you pause it, it's like, great shot all around. Oh, I have um, fashion moments later. Yes! Awesome! <laughs> Um, I had a note about that moment, too, actually, okay. because Mrs. Frederick says that Carol didn't just choose McPherson, she married him. Well, we also know that he never brought up who she chose to her or McPherson in any of these situations that we saw. In the bar, it was Carol who was like, you're just bitter, I didn't choose you, which was rude, even without the context, and now is even ruder. Um, and now when he's arguing with McPherson, McPherson is like, you love her too. Artie's not the one bringing it up. It's like they keep twisting the knife. So next, Pete asks if they ever nailed the murdering SOB. And Miss Frederick says, and this is very new information for us, that McPherson received five consecutive life sentences. And... I wanted to ask Jill about this because it sounds like with the information we have that there's a direct correlation between the five firefighters who died and the five consecutive life sentences, but was that, was that not why he got tried and convicted? Was it like a normal 
uh, court? Was it like a military court? Like, I have a whole headcanon about this. So wow. if someone wants to write the fan fiction based on it, let me just lay it all out there for you. Okay, good. Okay, and please, by the way, send us your headcanons. We would love to talk about them on the show or maybe do a Patreon bonus about them because this show is a lot of opportunity for headcanons. Okay, I believe the fire was set in an attempt to retrieve the phoenix from whoever they retrieved it from. I think that McPherson was tried by the regents, and we do know that it's not a one-to-one correlation that you save one life so just one other person gets hurt. It's sort of a gamble every time. We'll get more about that as the episode goes on. Mm -hmm. So I think that the verdict was probably... We can't know how many of these deaths, if any, you are responsible for, but you're definitely responsible for at least one death that night, and possibly five, and that was a risk you took knowing that five people could die, so we're going to try you for all of them and banish you from the warehouse. And then I think that Mrs. Frederick and or the regents just fixed some paperwork so that he would go to a jail. Sure, right. So we learn that... McPherson only served two years of the sentence, and then there was an explosion in the prison. Dozens were killed, so now we're adding uh, more deaths at the hands of McPherson. And the warehouse was told that McPherson was among those killed in the explosion. And Mrs. Frederick has this great, like, bitter line. Obviously, they were misinformed. And she just slays the way she says that. And what I found so provocative about this is that we were all like, why does no one believe Artie in implosion with the Hanjo Masamune? He's like, it's McPherson. And everyone's like, no, it's not. Um, And so it's one thing if McPherson was retired or quit, but the fact that the warehouse believes genuinely that he is dead explains so much about that episode and um also about how well Artie knows McPherson to be like no this is McPherson even though you know he was told that the man was dead based on antacid tablets if you recall ah the tablets (laughs) I don't think anyone wrote in. People wrote in to help us with a lot of our questions, but I don't think anyone told us what their theory on the tablets was. I really think he just has acid reflux, man. (laughs) He fled the scene, leaving Tums behind. (laughs) Yes. So, uh, one thing about this uh, discussion that's happening is that we noticed a lot of our agents are there. Pete, Micah, Mrs. Frederick... Also, Lena, but Artie and Claudia are noticeably absent. And in the background, Lena is... It looks like she's, like, stitching up Artie's shirt. So, first of all, Lena says, I've been monitoring the DC operation and he hasn't made contact. Which actually gives us good information for later, spoiler alert, of how he got into contact if she was monitoring that situation that would have been the person that he caught first but also sewing in front of your friends is a really good reason to wear a thimble around them 
Oh, Jillian, <laughs> you blew my mind. <laughs> I was like, that's such good writing and so subtle because no one's going to question like this innkeeper sewing like she does sort of caretakery roles. So everyone's just going to assume it's normal. But uh, you need a thimble to sew stuff. Oh, my gosh. Well, I sew without a thimble. That's why my thumbs are ruined. <laughs> Okay, yes. Oh my gosh, I just can't even deal. So the conversation continues with Micah and P and Mrs. Frederick. And Micah says, he went after my family. I understand why Artie's obsessed with him. Which is good. Micah and Artie don't always see eye to eye. So I like that she's empathizing with his thought processes. Uh, And Pete, who's still just in full-on hatred mode says he has no problem killing anyone does he and mrs frederick just says as you go after him you'll do well to remember that does it done such a scary line um meanwhile in the warehouse claudia's like how do you banish someone from the warehouse anyway good question and that's when Artie explains that the walls of the warehouse are infused with a mineral called painite and I didn't realize till I watched a second time with subtitles that that's P-A-I-N, pain, it. Um, so good name, writers. And then, this is the gross, scary science fiction part, McPherson was permanently injected with a substance that reacts violently to this painite. And I'm just like, oh, to be permanently, to have something permanently flowing through your veins is like, such an invasion and so oh it just sounds really really scary um not i mean like mcpherson deserved it and they had oh, yeah. to do that i'm and i'm sure that this science fiction is not like it's causing him pain every day but if he comes near that warehouse claudia asks the amazing question could you be a tad more specific with your modifiers i knew you would call that out i knew you would call out that line but just before you go forward she said something at the beginning she made a literary reference she said how do you banish someone from the warehouse anyway sounds very romeo and juliet which if you've ever read romeo and juliet they're always like, you're banished. He was banished. I'm banished. With so- the accent on the E, banished. That's so good. <laughs> Everything about Claudia's dialogue right here is like, these writers are like sitting around like, hee hee hee, in a good way, not like yeah, in a bad it's way. So, like you can tell they've really gotten to gel with the characters. Everything's float. It's They've clearly gotten to that point where the characters, I don't want to say write themselves because that takes agency away from the writers, but where they have such distinct voices where you can look at a line and be like, oh, Claudia would say that, not Artie, you know? It's just everything feels so natural and it flows really well. And I also like the visuals of them. Claudia at a relatively now to 2019 modern computer doing her little hacker thing and Artie sitting right next to her on his warehouse computer doing his little, like, (laughs) slightly supernatural thing. I just really loved everything about it. Yes, and so the other amazing writing thing, like this is all about being a writer, and like we said last week, like writers love to invoke literary references and have fun with language, but also when you write, especially genre like sci-fi fantasy, exposition is really hard to do like subtly and tactfully, 
And this, like, Claudia being a delightful and funny sort of teen and be like, specifically with your modifiers, blah, blah, blah. Like, that allows the characters to provide more exposition without feeling like um, one of the podcasters I like, Lonnie Diane Rich, calls it exposition mule. Like, you're just hauling this heavy load of exposition <laughs> in it. And it doesn't feel organic or natural. So that's totally not a problem here because of how well they did it. Anyway, so at the end of that exchange, which is legitimately terrifying, your blood turns acidic and eats through your own veins. That, But going directly to what I just said about how you can really easily tell a Claudia line from an Artie line because they're so well-formed now they both respond to each other with one word and you can see that clear characterization just in the one word each that they say claudia goes dude and Artie goes indeed (laughs) (laughs) oh it's so good it's so good um and claudia then moves on and says she's already done looking for him in the middle east and now she's looking for him in north africa and she'll just make her way through wherever she has to go before she finds him. And she has a couple of funny lines as she promises to find McPherson. She's like, dude, I'll find him. It's what I does. Um, And then seconds later, she goes, who the best? Because she has a hit on Edgar Allan Poe's pen, which is interestingly for sale. So Artie rolls over like, oh, let me see, let me see. And he's reading the website. And there's a link that says to view the rest of this elite collection. And yeah, uh, he did not take the cybersecurity training video that I have to take every year for my job, where it's like, don't click on suspicious links. Like, what a dad, though. Like, that's such a. Oh, like, obviously a suspicious link. And Claudia doesn't realize he was gonna mess around because she's like, no, 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 don't touch it. And he clicks, and I don't actually know, because I've never gotten a computer virus, how they look when you get them. I imagine they're not this dramatic, but a big skull appears, and this echoing voice goes through. Like, this is clearly related to McPherson being a villain and, like, trying to come after the warehouse firewalls and stuff. Um, And surely enough, within a few seconds, the virus begins messing with Claudia's programming, her systems, and she goes, oh no, you do not shut down the Claudiometer. Which I love, because we have no further information about what that is. It is just an unspecified code of her own making, which I love. You know what's funny is that I had suggested that this would be a good moment to keep a running list of Clardy nicknames, because remember when she called him... Artemis Maximus. Yes. Um, I thought she was just calling herself the Claudiometer. Like. Oh, yeah, maybe. In the way that my uh, Twitter handle is Mirandactyl. Like, you just kind of add some syllables on the end and it's clever. Because there's a future episode in season two where she adds some other words on the end of her name. And I think that if I recall, she has a couple of, like, self, like, maybe they're handles. Maybe they're just self-nicknames. I don't know. That's amazing, and I accept that as canon now. <laughs> yes. I also love the exchange that 
happens after this where Claudia is initially annoyed and flustered but she's like actually I can fix this it'll take time but I can do it and (laughs) Artie goes terribly terribly sorry you know you could try and she just goes touch it and die (laughs) like I can fix it but don't mess it up again yes it's so good so this takes us to Washington DC where we cut to a building that reads Freitag Tool and Die um I had to do some Wikipedia-ing on this, and so I am thrilled that I uh, get to share this with you. Tool and die is a phrase that doesn't mean death. It is a class of machinists in the manufacturing industry. So this is a uh, word for skilled craftsmen, artisans, who make a variety of tools used in the manufacturing process. Um, So that's where the tool comes from. And a die, not a dice or death, is actually a word for a specialized tool used to cut or shape material. And it's not quite like a mold, but it compared it to a mold in that you would need a special tool to make lots and lots of a specific thing. Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. I've heard of die cut machines. Yes, right. So you, you have this tool to help you in the manufacturing industry. So it's like this specific warehouse building that's not a supernatural warehouse but just a real warehouse would be for making those artisanal things that are needed for like that industry yes and inside of that building mcpherson is with someone named frytag so clearly clearly the owner of this factory when he shows him this cup and tells frytag to run his finger around the rim he does and I just called them Freitag's henchmen. Griff had ears in pain. Uh, McPherson and his people wear earplugs and take them out when it's over, so they're fine. And then there's another man there who is addressed as Mr. Pack, and he asks what other artifacts will be for sale. And McPherson shows him the phoenix. Yes. And I said that McPherson asks scary bald man number two to <laughs> hold the phoenix for him. Um, this is, I believe, McPherson's bodyguard or henchman. Um, he asks the guy closest to him to hold this phoenix for a second. And when the man takes it, McPherson grabs this guy and shoves him behind into this fiery furnace. And the other men, um, the scary guys, are like, oh, no, no. And McPherson is like, patience, hold on, you're going to see. And within a few seconds, there's knocking on the door. And McPherson opens it to reveal that the guy who just went into a furnace is completely unscathed. So I have a quick classics corner. For people familiar with Judeo-Christian stories, I think that this little interaction and the phoenix itself sort of invokes some judeo-christian um imagery the story from the book of daniel which i asked jillian about and is also like a sort of story in multiple judeo-christian religions is written during the hellenistic period and said to have taken place about 400 years prior to that so it was written in like 200 bc but it took place in 600 BC during the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. So the story goes that there were three Jewish youths, basically children for us, but young men working for the King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, 
they refuse to bow before an idol is what we would call it in Christianity, an, an image, um, a non-Christian or Judeo-Christian God image. And when they did, their punishment was to be thrown into a fiery furnace. Nebuchadnezzar watched their punishment be carried out, but when he saw these youths get thrown into the fire, he saw not just three, but four men. And the story suggests that God or the Son of God is in the flames with the men protecting them. And so he orders these three to be brought out and then decrees that this is proof that their God is the real God and anyone speaks out against anyone who speaks out against that God should be torn limb from limb. So, so God comes out, protects these guys, and then, you know, proves his power. The reason I bring this all up is because being a Hellenistic story, that actually denotes that it was during a time of peak Greek influence. So the idea of the phoenix, which is the self-resurrecting firebird we know from Harry Potter or other things, that comes from Greek mythology. And so even though this is a story that takes place in Babylon and is part of like a Judeo-Christian religion, I think that the phoenix could cross over because of cross-cultural exchange. And um, it is all just really cool to me. So it reminded me very much when I'm writing like, and they survived the fiery furnace. like. This is a familiar story, and I asked Jillian about it, and you told me that Jack Kenny worked on a show that might have something to do with this. He worked on a show called The Book of Daniel, which I don't actually think was about the Book of Daniel, but I think it centered around a priest named Daniel. Okay. But I thought that even if it wasn't an intentional correlation, it very well might have been an intentional correlation, I think that he does have some at least subconscious connection to this story. Um, sure. So I thought it worked out very well, and it came from a place of honesty, I think. And unlike the Bible story, they, the phoenix is not, you know, been given by a benevolent deity. It, in fact, causes two men in the back of the group of henchmen to begin choking and gasping, and the other guys are like, make it stop, like, don't, you know... And McPherson says, like, coldly, that for every life the phoenix saves, others will be lost. He says a few really interesting things that I want to point out one by one. The, the first thing he says is, in the right hands, this can be uniquely useful. Yeah, it's a very villain thing to say, but clearly he has imagined ways in which this can be used, which is terrifying. You should never plan for how you can carelessly murder someone, you know? Yeah, obviously. Then he says something that applies to every single thing in the warehouse, which is so interesting because he is a former warehouse agent, so he does have this perspective. He's just made it an evil one. He says even anomalies are bound by their own laws of cause and effect. Ooh, I didn't write that one down. It's a good one. And... You called out the third one, which is, for every person who the phoenix saves, others will be lost. So not one other. So that's not the one-to-one correlation. But he does say that everyone who touches the phoenix will be spared, but other people are less fortunate. And it gives the bear the commitment of a suicide bomber who never, ever dies, which is so scary. But also, it's it's easy to get lost in that last scary bit, 
But I do want to say that he says, whoever has touched the phoenix. So you don't have to be holding it at the time either in order to be safe. And that's what's so cool about these sort of vague phrases because I looked up on the Warehouse 13 wiki if people had specific um, artifact information about this like roll of the dice for exchange of life. And the Warehouse 13 wiki says it's possible that the duration a user spends in the fire affects how many victims the phoenix takes in exchange, but this is just a fan theory. This is coming from people on the internet. But I do think that that's really interesting um, and also frightening because we saw in this demonstration that the bald henchman was only in the flames for a brief second and two people died. So imagine if you were in the fire for a very long time it if that was true which we have no confirmation the idea that you could actually take many 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 lives and it goes with the suicide bomber thing too because then you're already in a horrible situation like that taking a bunch of lives and then even more in exchange for you know the bomber um so just good writing and scary villaining i love it but yeah, just before the two bald henchmen died, they started coughing smoke. Oh, yes. Yes. Awesome. Well, not awesome. <laughs> awesome visually. Yeah. Uh, so from there, we go to the credits and then it's act two. So we move to act two. We're in the warehouse and Artie is telling Micah and Pete that he crashed the computer systems and Claudia is working to fix it. And I feel vindicated because I was like, I feel like Claudia is a teenager. And Artie makes a joke like, oh my God, great. The warehouse is in the hands of a 16 year old kid. And she goes, um, 19. Yes, I wrote the same thing. And I was like, um, I'm not sure how much went into the final cut, but Jill did tell me during episode 104 Claudia that Claudia was 19. And I was like, no, I did the math. It was 12 years ago that she was 10 years old. Um, although that, I mean, that doesn't like, I, that, that is the math that I did, but it doesn't have to be exact or it doesn't have to be what the show is suggesting. We do learn that she is in canonical fiction of the show 19 and I think um, that Artie's comment is a joke because he doesn't actually underestimate Claudia because of her age. And I think that's really important in the show that she is so powerful and intelligent and capable despite being a teenager. Because I wrote some examples of 16-year-old and younger heroes. Um, obviously there's Buffy, but that's not, not the same what I'm thinking of is today, people like Little Miss Flint, who is currently 11, um, people like Malala, who won the Nobel Prize at 17. Like, the idea that having the fate of an important cause or a group of people in the hands of a teenage girl, like, there's no one else I want my fate in the hands of Correct. in a, a lot of these cases. I just wanted to shout out to real awesome young women because they yes. absolutely exist. Emma Gonzalez. Oh, yes! Oh, I love her so much. My queen. Much. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I, I felt like this wasn't disparaging energy on his part. I feel like it was almost like the dad who has to give his 
teenage daughter the keys to the car after she finally gets her license like yes i would much rather be there with you in case something happens but i guess at some point you have to do it on your own but it's never gonna be a good time and mrs frederick is there we're getting so many mrs frederick scenes and she's observing claudia with keen interest and Artie says, why is he selling the pen? What is he up to? He's asking this of Mrs. Frederick. Uh, and she doesn't answer. But Pete says, let's go over what we don't know. And Mike and Pete have a cute little exchange. This could take weeks, months, years. <laughs> it's just it's just great. It's like, I feel like up until this point, Pete and Micah have been a little afraid to be just themselves in front of Mrs. Frederick, but they don't have time to have walls up. They just, like, have to be who they are because stuff is happening in their lives. Yeah. Um, and so Pete and Micah begin asking questions, doing their job to try to get to the bottom of what the motives might be. And this is when there's an awkward pause and Micah kind of averts her eyes and is like, well, about Carol. And Artie goes into flustered Artie so fast. And he's like, you told them, you told them everything. Of course you did. Um, Mrs. Frederick remains stoic. I think she knows that Artie was going to be upset. And she she can allow him to be upset. But once a few seconds go by and he's still upset about it, she like raises her voice and she's like, calm down. She goes, Agent Nielsen. You are forgetting yourself. Oh, gosh, she's so good. She's so good. And there's something about when someone is so articulate and contained that yes. makes it even more intense. And meanwhile, about Artie, I just wrote, Artie got testy. <laughs> um, but she says, you're forgetting yourself. No one knows what he's capable of better than you, which gets him to shut up. Then Mrs. Frederick goes, except possibly me. Girl, I love man. Her. I love her, and I I have a couple of thoughts about her inclusion in this episode. Um, first of all, I have a note later about the Bechdel test, which we've talked about, and how having Mrs. Frederick in these scenes um, expands more of the you know female and feminist power of the show. Also, I believe I don't know about this scene, but in most of this episode, she is wearing her pink suit. And I love the sort of symbolism of that. It's this classic, like, I always think of Jackie Ken Jackie Kennedy wearing that mm -hmm. pink um, skirt suit. And it's like something older and something from a time when women had less power, especially when black women had less power. But she has the most power. She is ageless and timeless and just like, I know more even than you about McPherson is awesome so loving it yes i also have notes later about the bechdel test um and she goes on to tell Artie that pete and micah need to know everything if they're to survive this everything and Artie just goes yeah sorry you're right and then he starts talking to her air quotes because Sometimes he starts talking to a person and he's really just talking to himself. Yes. <laughs> and he goes, I never should have gotten to see Carol in D.C. The years twisted his thinking. I didn't know if I was putting her life in danger by going out to talk to her. He's just sort of spiraling. And Mrs. Frederick tells them all that they need to talk to Carol. Artie resists and said he's put way too much of a spotlight on her already by visiting her 
last time in Implosion, and Mrs. Frederick says that there's no choice. She's their only lead, which is really scary to Artie, but he has to accept it. And then Claudia happens. She- Claudia trying to be helpful. Because I think what Claudia Claudia is thinking, well, Artie just, you know, got this virus on the computer. He's upset about the systems being down. And now he has to go dig up this old wound and this ex-woman who broke his heart. And she is like, oh, don't worry. Like, she stands up and is like, I can take care of this. You know, after getting stuck to the ceiling and almost ground up in the gory, and you can see Artie making like a no no kind He's of shaking his face and she says, Why are you shaking your jowls at me? <laughs> I laughed so hard at that. It's so funny. I have a dog who has jowls. <laughs> and when I read that line, I took his face in my hands and I went, Are you gonna shake your jowls? Oh, <laughs> but he I mean like Artie doesn't have jowls like your dog, but he he is He kinda like, does. <laughs> he is like we're we're both making the jowl shake face. Like he is shaking his jowls and it's so well written. Like that person who wrote that line had to visualize Saul Rubinek shaking his face <laughs> in that exact way to just like nail it. Um the other thing that's funny is that in response, um, Mrs. Frederick is like, well, you know, Miss Donovan is going to brief me on those events. And we get the audible gulp, which we also had in the last episode and seems to be, you know, kind of along with any other sound effects of like karate chops and gulps and things. Like there's a, a humor in the show and a, like genre nod in the show. So all of that was really fun. I also just want to say with regards to future episodes, Claudia clearly thinks she's in trouble, but I would like to state for the record now that I think Mrs. Frederick took an interest for different reasons. Sure. Yeah. Because I think, you can, you'll probably cut this out, but I think that she's starting to sense the... So from there, we go back to D.C. and we're in Carol's apartment. And Artie says that no matter what McPherson said... Carol's not safe, and she claims to have not seen him in 15 years since, basically, he was tried and put in jail. She claims she hasn't seen him since the night he saved her, but she says that she wouldn't have chosen to trade those other lives for her own, and she never forgave McPherson for making that choice for her, and that Artie should know that. Artie, you can see him sort of believing her. He's so emotionally invested. Micah has no emotional investment in this and is pissed at McPherson. It just goes, you like fresh cut flowers. They're everywhere. And there was this jewelry box in the trash with wrapping paper on it. And Carol goes, I had a birthday. And Pete just goes, your birthday's in four months. We're good at the Google. And he makes a little typing gesture, which I loved. Yes. And I just had this joke. I just had a bad joke to make, which is that Micah has found some things that are obviously hetero gifts. Yes. Flowers, jewelry. Like, that's just my bad joke. No, it's true. Then Micah goes in for the hetero kill. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. It's okay. Keep going. Keep going. And she says, there's two umbrellas behind me, one pink, one black. Was it raining three days ago? Like, oh, Micah, you're so good. You're so smart. I love the look she gets on her face when she knows she's right. Like, I hate you, but I love myself and my awesome brain. And this makes Carol crack. 
Um, so she steps in, defending McPherson like he's not who he used to be, etc. And Artie steps in. Artie says he's here to protect her. Um, she continues to defend McPherson. And she gets so upset that she stands up and slams a book down. But she's obviously doing this in order to hide something, like a little scrap of paper. Micah notices immediately. Like, if you wanted Micah to not notice, you shouldn't have tried to hide it. Um, she snatches up the business card, which we see the initials JM and the address, which if you pause is the same as the one on the building from before. Um, and then Artie also notices a Waz scepter on this card, which he says represents power and is also the symbol on Carol's necklace. So before I give it over to Jill, this is my question or concern. Artie explains that this is uh, not only the symbol for power, but specifically represented power over chaos, which makes sense for McPherson being this, you know, bad villain who's causing trouble. Um, I googled it a little bit. It was actually the hieroglyph for the word power. Um, so the Waz scepter is a, you know, real known Egyptian symbol. And we're going to see that Artie's like, you know, I have to take that, Carol takes the necklace away, treats it as an artifact. And this is where I wondered if it really was an artifact. And if it was, if let's say McPherson anonymously sent a jewelry box with a beautiful necklace in the mail, and this woman gets an anonymous gift and puts it on because it's beautiful, and then it's actually an artifact that makes her love him or makes her forgive him or makes her any number of things, this is something I find very potentially upsetting and makes McPherson a worse villain if he had used an artifact to take advantage of his ex-wife, which we don't know. I mean, she could have helped him of her own volition, which any spouse would have the thought of doing. Even if it had been 15 years, you have a real bond. But um, basically what I wrote down is we see Artie take it and eventually kind of put it in his bag, but we never see if it sparks or not. And the Warehouse 13 wiki does not catalog it as an artifact, but that's because I don't think we know one way or the other. Yes. I didn't initially think that it was an artifact because it didn't occur to me, but your explanation does make me think it's an artifact, especially when I looked up the Waz Scepter, because it is a sign of power but also more specifically dominion, which is sovereignty or control over something. So not yes. just like having power and being powerful, but power to control someone, which we know is in line with McPherson's character. He likes to use people as puppets. And I can see the narrative forming in his brain. Yes, like, me too. Because if she had first claimed that she hadn't seen him since the night he saved her and that she was obviously really mad about that and that she expected Artie to know how mad she was about that I can believe they haven't seen each other in that long so for him to just come out of nowhere in 15 years and for everything to be okay is a little weird yes and the last time we saw her in I think implosion she was she was like, no, of course not. Like, she was obviously, I think, not yet visited by him. 
which would imply that she wouldn't welcome a visit from him. Yeah, but I think that in his brain, he's like, well, I was obviously tried so quickly and I never got a chance to explain myself to her. So, I mean, I can definitely see his justification there. It's not a good justification, but I can see, like, his reasoning in his brain. And his justification, too, because we see that she, Carol, is not remarried or anything like that. And any kind of entitled abuser would be like well clearly she still wants me it's like no she could decide not to remarry for any number of reasons and suddenly pete stands up and looks super unhappy and micah knows what that look means and she walks across the room to him while Artie takes carol's necklace away while she calls him Mm -hmm. arrogant pete says i got a really bad feeling i think it's about Artie." I think he's gonna... Never mind, it's gone now. So... Unsettling. Unsettling, yes. It's like, we know it's not nothing. We trust him when he says it went away. But Pete's vibes, I wouldn't say they're specific, but they're specific enough for him to be like, Dad, don't go to work today, or it's a direction. But this is just a person. (sighs) Or Pete... Pete might know, like, he thinks Artie is gonna, you know, do something I don't think terrible. he knows. I don't think he knows. I think he's just, like, the way I read it was something bad and Artie. And that could mean Artie's gonna do something or something bad is gonna happen to Artie. And I just don't think that he can sort out which is which. Oh, I see. So, back at the warehouse, Claudia has the computer back at warp speed, Captain. Um, it's very good, uh, a very good scene that I want to take specific note of for two reasons related to the Bechtel test. First is that bringing Claudia in and having Lena and Mrs. Frederick, everybody all hands on deck in this episode, makes the show much better in terms of the conversations between women. But second of all, we mentioned, I think last week with Micah and Claudia that each coupling of characters has an interesting dynamic where they bring things to each other and this is a moment where we really get to see Lena and Claudia so we saw Claudia and Micah but now we see these two that are very different in a lot of ways working together it's like Lena is using her empathetic emotions to see what happens as Claudia goes through this process But also, like, she's just being a good kind of warehouse partner. Because when you think about it, like, Lena and Claudia are in the warehouse a lot. And they probably spend a lot of time together that we don't see. So they're working and they get into McPherson's website. Um, I guess because of 2009 reasons, it takes a minute for the photo to to load. (laughs) And when McPherson pops up, Claudia's face just drops. She looks shaken. It's just like, it's like a blank face, but in the most shaken way. Because it doesn't say McPherson. It has another name there. It's like the same initials, but that are a different name. So she sees the name, but it's also clearly not a name she expected to see with that picture. And then she tells Lena, I know him. He was Joshua's physics professor. He's the one who gave Josh Redicus his compass. That is so Uh, scary. 
If that wasn't scary enough, although one might have asked oneself, how did Joshua get the compass? But how does anyone get an artifact? You know, it was so easy to brush off. Oh, it's so, so scary because not only do we get this revelation, but then Claudia's like, he contacted me um, eight months ago. So this would have been before she was working at the warehouse. She was tracking Artie as she was looking for the warehouse and she said he friended her, so we get, like, a hint of social media, email, etc. Um, asked how Joshua was, whatever, and suggested some ways around the warehouse firewall. So, this is really scary, because I wrote, In case you fell asleep halfway through the conversation, Claudia gives us the more specific line, I think James McPherson helped me hack into the warehouse. Yes. Um, and oh, the name in the picture is James Maxwell. Thank you. So what I wanted to say about Lena here is that Lena, you can see, is on the one hand like, oh no, I need to gather this information and get it to Mrs. Frederick and Pete and Micah as soon as possible. But Lena is also clearly empathizing with how freaked out Claudia is and how betrayed she must feel. Yeah. Uh, she has what I would call an extremely pensive expression. So Claudia is really upset. At that moment, it, it provides so much fear for us as the audience, but everything that we learn answers so many questions that we sort of just suspended our disbelief and thought, well, we'll never get answers about these questions. Um, like, how did Claudia figure out there was a warehouse and where it was like we were just like oh well she's really smart I'm sure she figured it out but it does make more sense that someone with insight gave her tips and as a person as a young woman who who works in a field and you do this too but works in a field where you constantly feel like you have to prove yourself and where people underestimate or don't expect things from you like mm -hmm. I feel like Claudia had this victory of like, I am brilliant, I am capable, I can find this top secret warehouse, and then to have that taken away, like, for the record, she is just every inch as brilliant as she thought she was, regardless of McPherson's inner, you know, intervention, but... I can feel how she would have felt if someone had been like, oh, that thing you thought you accomplished, like actually someone was puppeteering the strings. Like that would make you so upset. I am with her in her anger. Yes, 100% co-signed good talk. Good talk. <laughs> Back in D.C. at Freitag Tool and Die, Artie, Micah, and Pete walk down a hallway together. Artie recognizes all the machines as German machines, which just jumped out to me as a specific thing to know because it wasn't actually relevant to anything, but he knows his German machines. But here's what I think it is. I think that Artie assumed this was a front, that McPherson owned the warehouse and that there weren't actually any tool and die machines. But when he goes in and it's filled with actual tool and die machines, Artie is thrown off. Um, because Freitag is a German name, this is actually a German factory, Artie didn't think that's what this was. He was confused. That's what I think. Smart. 
So Frytag approaches them as they wander into the main floor. They flash their badges and say their secret service. He says, oh yeah, make yourselves at home. And as soon as their backs are turned, he takes out the cup that McPherson gave him as a gift. Air quotes, gift. And Pete struggles through the pain that happens when the sound goes everywhere and knocks the glass out of Frytag's hand. And sound reverberates so hard around the room that all the windows shatter and they all seem temporarily deaf but before we can get a clear enough view we cut to commercial and then we're back exactly where we left off Frytag is gone he ran out at the end of the previous act and (laughs) he and Micah are shouting at each other I can't hear you but it's so echoey they can't make it out and then they say Artie approaches with what I call his Mary Poppins bag. Yes! I have a very specific headcanon about that bag. Okay, I'm probably not the first person who has ever thought of this, but I believe that he never actually packs anything in that bag. I think he reaches in and he thinks about a specific shelf in the warehouse and it allows him to grab that thing from that shelf. That's exactly what I thought. I thought it was like <laughs> telepathically linked with the warehouse. And I might have read that online. I read a lot of fan fiction approximately six years ago. <laughs> but um, yes. That's amazing. Um, and inside the bag of endless wonder, which is what I shall call it from now ah, on. Yes. <laughs> by the way, my other headcanon is that it is actually Mary Poppins' bag, and what we all know is Mary Poppins' bag is something else that, like, the warehouse has. Or that Mary Poppins is a real historical figure. Yes. And that the cartoon, or not the cartoon, and that the children's movie is just... Like uh, Alice in Wonderland. Yes, it's a warehouse fabrication! Oh yes. my gosh! That's that's my personal belief. Oh, that's good. Just just throwing it out there. Um, you're, so, you're so good. <laughs> thank you. Well, from this bag of endless wonder, he pulls out a tuning fork and has them close their eyes and he touches the back of their head and just sort of like bonks them with it. <laughs> That's the funny part. Like the tuning fork, of course, would fix the hearing problem. But the like, I've got to hold your head and bonk you is pretty funny. I thought that it made a sort of hilarious warehouse sense. Like, yes, I have to bonk you so that you come back in tune with your surroundings. But yeah, it was hilarious. And then I have a note because Artie explains what that cup was and it is the Goblet of Severin. He says that, or it's a Goblet of Severin because obviously the real one is in the warehouse so there must be another one that survived. It was designed by a Roman glassblower in 221 for Emperor Alagabalus. That's as good as I'm going to be able to say that, I'm sorry. Who Artie calls a very incompetent young man. Artie tells Pete to pocket the glass and the only way to for Elagabalus to get the room quiet was to use that goblet to emit a high-pitched sound that brought people to their knees. Now, I looked up Elagabalus. He did develop an extreme reputation among his contemporaries for being super eccentric, inordinately decadent, and being a zealot. So that's just a lot of stuff happening in one person. He suffers, according to Wikipedia, one of the worst reputations among Roman emperors, which, (laughs) oh 
holy cow, because if you looked at Roman emperors, yeah, they're, I mean, you have specifically, of course, I was never questioning your knowledge on such things. Oh, no, like, the listener, have you looked? You should, that would be fun. Yes, because a lot of them have not great reputations, so for him to stand out as especially terrible is astounding. There's a quote from someone named Barthold George Nyber. It's spelled a little differently, so I'm sorry if I mispronounced that, but his quote is, The name Elagabalus is branded in history above all others because of his unspeakably disgusting life. (laughs) That's amazing. I've never heard of Elagabalus. I did look him up just now, and I think you're doing an amazing job pronouncing his name. (laughs) Thank you. And there is, of course, people who say... Look, his reputation is exaggerated by his enemies, so that's what we're going to get in history, which is a totally valid critique. But he was married and divorced five times. We know three of their names. That in and of itself is not, quote, unspeakably disgusting. (laughs) But his second wife was Julia Achillea Severa, which is, I think, probably definitely related to Severin. The Goblet of Severin. Perhaps it was just a goblet he had at that time. I don't know. What I cared about was not her name. Under any other circumstance, it would have been her name. What I cared about was that she was, prior to marriage, a Vestal Virgin. (laughs) Great. You're not supposed to do that. The punishment for breaking your vows as a Vestal Virgin were being... Buried alive. Jillian, have you seen the episode of QI about the Roman emperor who accidentally killed a whole banquet of guests by flooding the room with rose petals? Was that him? That was him! (laughs) Amazing! (laughs) It's in an- I'm sorry, I just read that right now. So, it's extraordinarily upsetting for people of that era to- know that a vestal virgin was married like the modern equivalency of a nun doesn't fit it's a much deeper religious commitment yeah and it's not their choice either i think is the thing like you can choose to i would like to be a vestal virgin but you are not necessarily selected for that position there are not a lot of vestal virgins at a time so it's really astounding to me that he was able to do this and that definitely helps me understand why his contemporaries thought him to be very disgusting. I will also say, just because I'm reading it and I want it to go in, it's possible that he was bisexual. Um, It says he also married a male lover. Mm. Um, But in ancient Rome, that wouldn't have been... Well, I don't know about what period he was in, but that wouldn't have been something the Romans found as disgusting that would be a classification from later like homophobic historians so if if anything we're hating on him for um it is not possibly being bi or anything although he just seems to have been a bad partner regardless of orientation (laughs) um he was a follower of the eastern sun god el gabal which i guess is where his name comes from Elagabalus, Elagabal. Um, And when marrying himself to Severa, 
it some people believe that he was symbolically merging his god to the god vesta oh neat or maybe not neat well neat in terms of a historical context not so neat in terms of an action (laughs) so that is the rabbit hole that i fell down when investigating the goblet of severin which i'm glad i was able to find some interesting stuff there because we're getting to a point in this series in our podcast series where we're not going to be able to look into every single artifact because we get so many that pop up per episode so this was an unexpected and super fun detour that i thought our listeners would like to know about that was so fun thank you so much for doing that i love it going back to the scene that he would use the high-pitched sound to bring people to their knees and pete said i could have used one of those in high school and Artie goes, haha, indeed. And I wrote, is this something I don't get because I'm demisexual? I don't get it either. See, because he, it, he, Artie doesn't seem like he would support that kind of joke. I, I didn't even write it down. I was like, well, that was a thing he said. <laughs> okay, so then Micah finds a box with the Waz symbol carved into it. Artie sees the marking on it and realizes that Carol's necklace is the key. And he sticks the bottom of the necklace into this little two-prong lock and opens the box. And I wrote, you go, code breaker, Artie. Yes. <laughs> um, and he finds a pair of glasses inside the box and puts them on. And he sees sort of like a projection of the phoenix. I don't know if you ever wore Google Glass. I went to like an event at Google and that's exactly what that experience is. It looks like oh there's boy. a hologram in front of you. It was pretty interesting. Um and he sees the phoenix and is shocked and Pete goes, I want to try him on. I like great in glasses. And I wrote, oh man, he does. Oh, I said something different. I said he says he looks great in glasses, but let me just say, of the three of them, Micah looks the best. Oh, I wrote that too when she put the glasses on. Oh, she looks she looks so amazing good. in glasses. <laughs> I mean, Pete also looks fine, but like Micah looks like those belong on her face. Like those were her glasses that she brought from her house, yes. Joanne Kelly's house. And then, oh my gosh, she looks. But that she 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 puts them on later, not yet. Yeah, she looks amazing, but he looked so Clark Kent. It was like, oh! I loved it so much. I was like, you do look good in glasses. This is like your final form. Um, <laughs> um, so then Pete realizes as he looks around the hologram image thing that at the bottom there are words that say starting bid $20 million and Artie is too, di- I wrote, Artie's too distracted by an unseen emergency to pay attention to the one right in front of him. He just keeps saying the phoenix is in the warehouse. Oh, right. He, he can't have it to sell because it's in the warehouse. And Micah says selling it for money doesn't make sense. And Pete says, well, what kind of villain would he be? And I wrote, I agree. There are plenty of ways to make money that don't involve a risk of exposing yourself to people who want to lock you in jail and or cause your blood to eat through your veins. So I agree. It's a, it doesn't make sense that it would just be for the money. And Artie says he's not doing it for the money. He's doing it for another reason. I just don't know what. And Micah, (laughs) Micah's like following them and super casually goes, in any other show someone would have gone, 
but wait, I've discovered this. I love her super casual read of this line, which is, you know, this is too easy, right? Like, (laughs) he wants us to find these things. Like, I'm obviously so smart, and I know this, and I love her. Okay, I want to try the glasses on, but just so you know, I've noticed something, um, which is great. And she puts the glasses on, and she smiles so big. I love, like, her just joy in what the warehouse can do. Um, Artie expresses concern about bringing Micah and Pete with him as on this continuing journey and they argue with him until he says fine (laughs) all of a sudden Artie's demeanor gets very spy versus spy if you ever read mad magazine inventing more and more insane ways to throw each other off and try to kill each other that is what is happening with Artie and McPherson right now and Artie says obviously it's a trap of some sort but he would know that I would know it's a trap. What is he planning, knowing that I know he knows, which makes me think of friends. And then I wrote, Micah, being brilliant and noticing something on the box, says, guys, this has a date, time, and address of the auction, and it's today. She's saying this as she's turning the jewelry box thing over in her hands. And Pete and Micah both look sexy as glasses <laughs> that's just what i wrote sorry Artie. <laughs> so uh lena meanwhile tells mrs frederick about the news um and how upset claudia is about that information of course lena is concerned that mcpherson could still be using claudia if he had you know somehow been accessing her, tapped into her, etc. This is when Artie Farnsworth's in and then passes along his information that McPherson claims to be selling the Phoenix and Mrs. Frederick might just use a door. She goes, she goes out, she goes up, she's like, I need to go check on my warehouse, like, goes to the Phoenix, she finds, instead of the phoenix itself, a little note that says, I owe you one phoenix. XOXO, James! With an exclamation point after James. And then she deadpans. Now I'm getting angry. And I'm like, oh, it's so good! Every single line she delivers in that whole sequence is a turning point. So she answers the phone, and he says, McPherson claims to have the phoenix. And she is smiling, and she goes, the phoenix is in the warehouse. And Artie goes, I know. Then she goes, no longer smiling, all business, I'll get back to you. And then she says, now I'm angry. With three lines, she just took us through three movements of story. She's so incredible, and I just don't think another actress would be able to do that. She was not given enough awards for her time on this show, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Legendary. Legendary. CCHP. So, at this turning point in the story, I think it's a good time to go ahead and cut the episode in half. That is a really loud bird. Um, we will release part two during our normal production slot on Tuesday, but it might be late in the evening, so Wednesday would be the day to look for it. Thank you so much for your patience because the artifact expert we got gave us so much good stuff to use in part two that that's why 
we realized much later and knew we would need more time to figure out how long this episode would be. So, huge, huge thanks to all of you for supporting us. I know we just got a ton of new Patreon support that we will shout out to at our soonest possible new recording date. 